Before we get into the teaching of the Word, if y'all would with, with me, believing, especially in these three or four chapters, that unless the Holy Spirit of God is at work in a church, that church is a dead church. And so I'm going to ask God to be with us in the teaching of His Word, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge just what I said, that if your Spirit is not working deeply in the lives of your people, if we harbor sin in our hearts, we have broken fellowship with you and we uh, move and have our being only in the flesh, not in a spiritual sense. And so, God, would you come now Convict those who need to be convicted of sin. Direct those who need direction. Comfort those who need comfort. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you be our helper as I seek to teach your word? Forgive me because my sins are many. Teach your word to us, O Father, we pray in the power of your Spirit. Amen. So, the title of the sermon this morning is, at least in your bulletin it reads, Blessings in Disguise. But I, I have a subtitle for it. And the subtitle would be, Sorrow to Joy. So, Blessings in Disguise or Sorrow to Joy. And the reason that is, is the disciples in our text and for really the last three chapters are facing the reality of what Jesus is telling them is going to be a hard, immediate future. They're walking into some sleepless nights. They're walking into some real disappointment, some storms, some trials. And Jesus tells them in our text today, he's going to turn their sorrow into joy. His leaving them will be a mercy or a blessing in disguise. And so my question for you, how do you walk through the harder things in your life? What are some of the harder things? And how do you walk through those? None of us are getting out of this life without some of those harder things. Matter of fact, many of us sitting here right now are in the middle of some very hard things. How are you walking through those? The crux for the sorrow and the anxiety is that Jesus is communicating to them, he's going to leave them, and he's going to be crucified. He tells them, you're going to abandon me when this happens, and you're going to be persecuted, and they're going to hate you. And so at this point, the disciples are feeling overwhelmed with this news that is coming from their leader. But these things are not as they seem. What do I mean by that? What I'd like for you to do is turn with me in your Bibles from John over to 2 Corinthians. So you'd go towards the back. 2 Corinthians 4 18. 
2 Corinthians 4, 18. And in the NIV, which is the version that is in the pews, this is how this text reads. It says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on what isn't seen. That's interesting, isn't it? What a strange sentence. Fix your eyes on what you can't see right now. Just do that. It's like, I don't know how to do that. How do you fix your eyes on what you can't see? And then he says, but what is unseen is eternal. Our text today, I think, is going to help us shed some light on the mystery of what Paul is telling the Corinthians in this passage, and that is how you fix your eyes on something that is not seen. To illustrate this out of the gate, Laura Story Elvington and her husband, Martin, are friends of ours from our last church. She was the worship, or one of the worship leaders at our church. They arrived at our church, at our previous church, to help lead the worship. Martin worked with computers, and he was going to grad school here in Atlanta. They moved from South Carolina. Laura, on the other hand, was a budding musician and soon to be a nationally recognized singer and songwriter. In 2009, however, Martin began to fall asleep in church while she was singing. And Martin began to fall asleep in other meetings. And Martin began to do all kinds of crazy things. And then he began to grow again. He was already 25 or 26 years old. And the doctor said, in the last year, you've grown an inch. And his hands and his feet, and he noticed his shoes weren't fitting anymore. And so Martin began a battery of tests. Martin was eventually diagnosed with a brain tumor that was pushing on his pituitary gland. After her husband, Martin, was diagnosed with this brain tumor, Laura began to ask the question, God, you're sovereign. Why don't you just fix this? God, you're all-powerful and you're loving. You could fix this. You see, they're, they're saying now, years later, is they went from their honeymoon to the ER because it was such a short time between when they married and when the tumor was diagnosed. Later, after mentioning her desire to her sister for things to return to normal, Laura's sister said this to her, you know, I think the detour is actually the road. And Laura wrote a song out of her pain. Her song won a Grammy that year. 
In 2011, her first single off of that album titled Blessings reached number one on the Billboard charts for Christian songs. Given Story, Laura Story, her first number one hit, in an interview, Story explains, Blessings is just a bunch of songs about worshiping when your life is really hard. Her lyrics remind me of our text today, and they remind me of what it means to live in a broken world. And so on your screen, I want to show you the lyrics from her song entitled, Blessings. She says, we pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep very common prayers. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because If your blessings come through raindrops, what if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom your voice to hear, and get this, an honest moment. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. As if every promise from your word is not enough. All the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we would have faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not our home. What if, what if my greatest disappointments are the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world will never satisfy. What if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Let me pray. Father, I believe that you spoke to Laura's story and you gave her words of truth that we should fix our eyes on the blessings and the mercies that are in disguise that often come to us wrapped in paper packages that we would not choose. But when we remove those dirty pieces of paper 
we find some of the deepest, richest, fullest blessings we could ever imagine. Pray that you'd help us see that during this time. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Jesus began this lengthy sermon in John 13, 31. And foremost on Jesus' mind was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's been talking about from chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 16. The section of Scripture that we're in has often been referred to as the farewell discourse, meaning Jesus is about to leave and go to the cross. And so he's saying farewell. These are his final words. And in John 13, just as a refresher, he washes their feet and then he gives them uh, this example of humility and in it he gives them a new commandment. He says, you should love one another. And then in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. And again, he promises the Holy Spirit. In John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. And he promises again the Holy Spirit. You see the theme. In John 16, he tells them about the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus must leave and I'll send the Spirit. And he has overcome the world. Now, look at our text, if you would, with me at John 16, 16, because it's peculiar. And the way Jesus says this is kind of, it's kind of strange. He says it like this. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. It's like, are you trying to make that confusing? Because it feels that way. I think the key to understanding this is this idea of what is the first little while? What does Jesus mean when he says the first little while? And most scholars, and I agree, the first little while is an easy one. It is basically when I go to the cross and I'm crucified, you're going to see me no longer. So the first one is, is about that easy. The second one, not so much. The second one is, is a little bit harder. And there's different and varying views about the second little while. I believe the Lord used the childbirth in this passage to illustrate what he meant by the second little while. But what he's saying in that illustration of a woman giving birth is that sorrow can ultimately result in great joy. And so, but the problem is with the second little while, some say the first little while is when Jesus was crucified. The second little while is when Jesus comes back the second time and takes all believers to heaven with him. The problem with that is that's not a little while. It's already been over 2,000 years. And so I don't believe that's the teaching of this text. I think there's another explanation for it. Now, others believe, he said, in a little while you'll see me no longer, and then in a little while you'll see me again. 
Others believe it's he's crucified, and then in three days, Easter, he comes back and they see him again. The problem with that interpretation, in my opinion and in others, is that he also leaves 40 days later and ascends to heaven, and he says in there, no one will take your joy away from you. So the disciples would have been let down at the cross and then lifted up three days later at Easter, but then let down again 40 days later because of the ascension. So I think, and because the last four chapters have been talking about the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is saying is in a little while at Pentecost, after I'm crucified, resurrected at Easter, and then go and ascend to be with the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll enter into you and nobody can take your joy because you'll now have my Holy Spirit. And that's very consistent with these last three or four chapters in John. And so my answer to Jesus' little while here is it's the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of Christ comes in the Holy Spirit down to earth in Pentecost and into his people. And so Jesus is saying, in a little while, that's what's going to happen. But here's the problem. If you look at John 16, 17 through 19, the disciples are confused. And when I read this, quite frankly, in my study, I was confused. In a little while, in a little while, in a little while. What's all these little whiles? But listen, listen to the disciples talk about it in 17 through 19. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And then they go, and again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourself? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. So you see the disciples are in the same boat we are when we read that. It's like, that doesn't really make sense. And so they're asking each other, and isn't it interesting that Jesus is omniscient? And if you don't know that word, omniscient means he knows everything. He knows that they're talking about this. He knows that they don't understand what he said when he said that. So what does he do? <clears throat> Jesus launches into this explanation with an illustration. So if you look at 20 through 22, this is Jesus explaining, this is what I mean by a little while, guys. So in 20 through 22, he says, and y'all remember, when he says truly, truly, that means we're supposed to lean in like, all right, this is a big deal. When Jesus says, truly, truly, he, he wants you to pay attention. He says, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. What is he saying? In that first little while, when I get crucified, all of you disciples are going to weep and you're going to lament. But you know what the world's going to do? <laughs> we killed him. That guy that said he was the carpenter, the Messiah, and the king of the Jews, we killed him. That's the way the world will react. And then he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He says, when a woman is giving birth, 
She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For a joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So when Peggy and I uh, actually found out we were pregnant with our first child, the, uh, the doctors told us that he had a bipolar choroid cyst. And like Maxine just looked at me with like, what is that? That's what I said to the doctor. And they went on to explain that it probably meant that our son would be born with Down syndrome. And so they immediately rushed us in to meet with a genetic counselor, and the genetic counselor told us, you should abort this child, and you should do it sooner than later. And so believing that all life is a gift from God, Peggy and I looked at one another, we didn't even have to talk about it, and we said, no, that's not for us. And the next few months were hard. Uh, quite frankly, we believed for those next few months that our son would be born with Down syndrome and uh, spent a lot of time praying and asking God for grace. But interestingly enough, in the third trimester, we went back and they did another sonogram. And you know what they said? He looks perfectly healthy. We would have aborted a perfectly healthy child. So Bryce is born, and he's perfectly healthy and just graduated from Georgia Tech. <laughs> Our second child came along when we got pregnant with her, and Peggy and I said, probably wisely, let's don't do a sonogram. <laughs> let's just wait and find out what the sex is of this baby when it's born and not put ourselves through that. And so Peggy's sister is a labor and delivery nurse, and she and Peggy worked together on these natural childbirth plans, which I think are crazy uh, because I've sat through it. But she had all three of our children naturally, just went out in the woods and came back um, <clears throat> when she was ready. No, we, did, we, we went to a birthing center in a small little town because we were living in Statesboro, Georgia. And, uh, and we had that second baby, and I remember, you know, there were, as you... No, most of you mothers, hours and hours of agony and agony, and she's not taking any medicine for it, and I'm watching her, and, it, and as a husband, I mean, obviously, I'm not carrying the load, but there is this fear when you see someone in that much pain, are they really going to make it through this, you know? And so when we got to the very birthing, it's actually happening now. We don't know the sex of the baby, and the, and the midwife says, push, push, don't you want to know the sex of the baby? And I think there was a, an extra energy there to, for Peggy. And then, because we had, she had been told all through the second pregnancy, you're carrying this like you'd carry Bryce, it's just like him, you're having another boy. When Lindsay came out, the midwife said, it's a girl. And it was as if Peggy had just woken up from a 12-hour nap, and she said, it is, and her, I mean, just her voice popped with enthusiasm. 
And it was almost like all that labor, all that pain, and all of a sudden, she's just back to being her normal self, and she's so excited. Well, I'll never forget that. Jesus is saying something very similar here. He's saying, I'm going away. In fact, I'm going to be killed. But then I'm going to go to the Father. You're going to walk away from me. You guys are not going to believe everything you've heard. You don't have the Holy Spirit in you yet. You're going to deny me. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be like giving birth in some ways. But then when I do that, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And when he enters you, it's going to change things forever. And we know in Acts, when the Holy Spirit came on them, Peter, one who denied Christ three times, imagine the shame. He stands up in a mob of people, and he gloriously proclaims the truth of the gospel to them. And 3,000 people respond to his proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because Peter's great. You need to be like Peter. No. Because the Holy Spirit is incredible. And when he enters a person's soul, and when they stand in faith and proclaim Christ like Peter did, the Holy Spirit of God works. So... And then Jesus gives them this promise. Look with me at the promise that Jesus gives them in John 16, 23 through 24. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, so there it is again, truly, truly. I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy may be full. Now, you got to back up 2,000 years and listen to this statement through the ears of the disciples. You see, they, up until this point, if they wanted something, they would go, hey, Jesus, could you help us with this? Because we've got all these people and we've only got a couple of loaves and a little bit of fish. We, we need some help here. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to leave. And when I leave, you're going to have to ask in a different way because I'm not going to be here. You're going to have to ask in my name. And the Holy Spirit, he, he knows this, is going to work with you to make this happen. And so this is new for them. This is a whole new concept. For us, it's all we've ever heard. But for me, when I read this, you know, I, I tend to want to pray for, all right, um, God, if I can ask anything in your name, um, I would like a Tesla, you know? So I start praying for a Tesla for months and months and months. And you know what's happened? I've never gotten one. Which makes me go back and question what Jesus was really saying here. Was he saying, I can ask anything? And the answer is, no, not necessarily. John 14, 14 says, which is just before this, 
You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So the big question is, what does it mean to be in his name? And the, real, the answer to that is it needs to be according to my will. If you're asking according to my will, revealed in my word, through the Father, through the written word, then I will answer. A good, a good father gives good gifts to his children. But if his children are asking for something that is not helpful, that father is not going to give that. And often our prayers are that way. We're asking for things that we don't realize aren't that helpful. So, for example, in the story about Laura story and Martin, Laura prayed and prayed and prayed, Lord, take this away, take this away, take this away. Well, the way that played out is they did the surgery, they removed the tumor, but when they removed the tumor from Martin's brain, they had to remove parts of the brain. And some of the parts of the brain that they removed controlled all of his short-term memory. And it also controlled some of his vision, so Martin no longer can see peripherally. So he can no longer drive a car. But because he can't remember things, he can no longer hold down a job. Not a, not a job like what he would have had. So I would go to lunch with Martin after the surgery just as a friend, and I would notice Martin would pull out his iPhone or whatever phone he had at the time, and he would look at notes the whole time we talked. Do you know what he was doing? He was remembering the last conversation that we had because he had no other way to remember it than to have it in his notes. And he told me about what he was doing. And I had a long conversation with Laura once about it. And she said it has been one of the hardest experiences she could have ever dreamed in her life. But you know what else she said? She said that she would never be as close to God if she had not gone through this experience. And so my last point, in John 16.33, look there with me. In John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. What does he say? Look at that little phrase. In me, you may have peace. In me. What if God brings circumstances into our lives? Just think with me for a moment. Because there's this ultimate and bigger thing going on. That he would be willing to give you a thousand sleepless nights. That you might know he is near. Psalm 16 says the nearness of God is our good. To be near the greatest and most ultimate being in the universe 
is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you in your life. To be near him, to experience his peace, to experience his beauty, to experience his love, to experience his grace. You see, this life is not our home. And he's orchestrating circumstances for his people, both good and hard, to help us see the beauty and the goodness that is him.